One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. This episode of the Saturday podcast, which we still don't know what we're calling it, um, is brought to you from lovely Luke Air Force Base, as I am actually drilling this weekend. So uh, yeah, we will uh, see. Hopefully this Wi-Fi holds up and all is good to go. But that said, obviously, we are joined this week by my good friend, Sandamir. My dude, how are you? I feel like we're uh, repeating, um, but we have more audience members joining. So, you know, getting over being sick, a little cold, nothing bad. Uh, excited for kind of a strange slate. Uh, excited that it's NBA season. My wife is not excited by that because now it means I'm like obsessed with DFS every single day. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a good start to NBA season for me. So that's exciting. I love it when I get the overlap between the two seasons because it's like there's always something to do every day. Yeah, I have been uh, highly intrigued by the return of NBA. I've had a pretty successful four or five, what, three or four days of NBA so far. Um, yeah, four. Yeah, I, I've been dipping into NBA cash for the first time, and it has been fruitful thus far. Yeah, NBA cash yeah, is great. Like, it's, it's not the kind of thing you make money on. You know, you're not going to make a fortune on it, right? But like, it should be consistently profitable every year if you play it smartly. Yeah. Well, anyway, we digress a little bit. We're not here to talk about NBA, but I am equally as excited about it. We are here to talk about this juicy NFL slate, and I actually am really, really enjoying how this slate is shaping up. One, there are a lot of areas or avenues for us to generate leverage. We'll talk about those here, obviously, shortly. Two, there are a lot of perceived smash spots amongst a select group of mid-range wide receivers. We'll talk about that here shortly as well. And three, we have this one clear spot for expected game environments where it is like far and away, bar none, the top game environment on the slate. Yet we're seeing some pretty wonky projected ownership numbers out of that game. So we'll talk about that here as well. Sorry, I had to get another throat clear there. Um, but yeah, how are you seeing this slate? We're going to start big to small, I think, is the best way to tackle this particular slate. So how are you seeing the overall state of the slate? Obviously, we've talked about that a little bit over throughout OWS, but I want to know if any of your, your thoughts and your outlook on the slate from a macro perspective has changed uh, in the last day or two. Are you guys here in X? Yeah, I'm not hearing X either. Zandamir. Bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. All right. While Zandamir works through some technical difficulties, we're going to just jam about the state of what Hilo is seeing here. X, go ahead and jump in if you can hear me at any point so I know that you're back. So there's a couple of interesting dynamics to the slate from a top-down macro perspective. The first, obviously, is the one main game environment that we have on the slate, and that's obviously the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tennessee Titans. 
But when we look at the expected ownership percentages, and they have been really all over the place with respect to that game in particular this week. When we look at the expected ownership percentages and how those have kind of shaken out, they have been highly reliant on potential for value plays. And that makes a lot of sense with the main plays and the main cogs of those two offenses being high priced players this week. Now, when you think about what the top plays in a vacuum on paper are on the slate, the two that I have singled out for me this week anyway, are from that same game. And those are in Derrick Henry and Tyreek Hill. When you then think about like the possibility of playing the two top plays on paper heading into the slate together, it becomes extremely difficult to do that because they're basically the, you know, two of the top three priced players on the slate. And that creates an interesting dynamic where we're likely going to be left with this case, this weird case where the top plays on the slate are highly unlikely to be played together on the same roster. That goes for Devontae Adams. That goes, well, we can talk about him being one of the top plays, whether he is or not here in a little bit, because I have my own thoughts on that situation. But Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Derrick Henry, and then Cooper Cup. Like those are the five main studs on the slate. You know, these guys who are capable of putting up 40 to 50 fantasy points when really no one else on the slate can. When you get this interesting case where all of them are in perceived smash spots, all of them have minimal paths to failure, and, and it becomes hard to play two or more of them on the same lineup, it's really, in my mind, going to spread out the expected ownership amongst that top tier. And I think that is an interesting place to start on the slate because it gives us a leverage point where if we can identify places where that are expected to be lower owned, come in at a little cheaper price and have good potential game environments, if we can identify those spots better than the field and better than you know, our compatriots who are competing against, I think it gives us an interesting leverage opportunity to be able to play like the clear top two plays on paper in Derrick Henry and Tyreek Hill, play them together and still be able to field a high upside roster around them. And that's an interesting dynamic to the slate because I don't think that we're going to get that like stars and scrubs jam them in and figure out the rest from the field because we have a slate where the perceived value is from the mid range of wide receivers and the mid range of running backs. And that creates that interesting like perception as well as psychological aspect of, Hey, I don't need to pay up for these top plays because I have these perceived mid range value guys. And I think that that might be one of the bigger mistakes on this slate from a macro perspective. I'm going to pause there and check on X. X, are you back, brother? X, control, alt, delete, man, reboot. I'm going to pause real quick, guys, and send shoot him a text. Or if Aaron, if um, listen, you shoot X a text and just have him log completely out and then log back in. See if that works while I continue.
Yeah, I'm talking to X on text right now. He uh, he's got a new headset that he's trying to get work. So I'll let you just keep going until we can get X back. But go ahead and just run the show until then. You got it. Sounds good. Thanks for the update, man. The other macro perspective, I see X trying his best. He's he thinks he can. He's working it. The other interesting aspect is we have these large game spreads, right? We have four games that are still carry a spread of nine and a half points or more. Obviously, you have the Packers, you have the Bucks, you have the Rams, um, and the... Oh, God. Now I'm struggling to find who the other one is. I will get there. I don't have excess backup right now. It's leaving me out to drive. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we have these four games with extremely wide game spreads. And when we're trying to figure out how an optimal way to attack these specific spots, we have to think and we have to look. Oh, I think I got you, X. Are we there? I got you, brother. Welcome Oh my back. God, I have no idea what happened. Yeah, Sorry you're, uh, was it your just headset just stopped? Because I saw you still here, but I was not getting anything. Yeah, and like, so there's a little mute button on my on my headset, right, on the cord, and like I was talking, and then it is like I heard in my ear like muted, and I was like, I didn't press the button, and I tried to press the button again to like unmute it, and it just kept coming back on. I have no idea what oh, happened, shit. but I, I just I unplugged it a few times and plugged it back in a few times, and I guess I should work in IT because that worked. <laughs> yeah, why don't you work in IT, man? Because apparently I'm terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> Control or delete? Did you turn it on? Sir, did you try and turn it off? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. This derailed everything. <laughs> uh, we talked real quick. Were you able to hear me? Yeah, I could hear you the whole way. Okay, cool. So you kind of got the gist of where I'm, I'm trying to go here. So we talked a little bit just to catch the crowd up. We talked a little bit about just the dynamics of the macro state of the slate, how we have um, an interesting dynamic where we have like five clear on paper top plays, but we're unlikely to see them mixed and matched and played together we're likely also to see rather spread out ownership amongst those five. And then we have this interesting dynamic where we have these large game spreads. Those are the big macro talking points that I think we, we start with this week. Are you seeing anything else from a macro perspective? Yeah, the big macro trends. One, I think you're right. Ownership is spread out. I only have four guys projected for over 20% ownership, um, which is unusual, right? It's a, it's a little on the low end. Um, and then it's just it's weird to me that there is what there's one clear very best game on the slate right like best game environment on the slate which is casey tennessee um and that game does not seem to be attracting a ton of ownership like there'll be some henry there'll be some kelsey there'll be some tyree kill um but like i was expecting you know opening up projections to see that like those guys would be among the highest projected players at their position tyree kill is like the 12th projected highest owned wide receiver you know kelsey is the highest on tight end but he's not that high um henry is like the sixth highest on running back um so it's i'm trying to kind of get a handle on this because i only looked at ownership projections for the first time this morning and i was expecting that kc10 would be at the very top uh as, as the best as the clear the absolute clear best game environment um and it's not and i'm like i was like okay like, i was going into today thinking we're going to talk about like how to get away from kc tennessee or how to build around it very intelligently um with you know, with some with some with some structures that don't 
uh, attract a ton of commonality and ownership. Um, but it's actually looking like fair, a fairly modestly owned game. You know, not 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 low owned, not ignored, but ownership there just looks a lot lower than I expected. And I'm kind of confused um, and wondering if the projections are just wrong, uh, or or if people are shying away from this game for a reason that I'm not seeing. So, like, I guess I'd ask you. Do you have any thoughts on why this game is going overlooked? Because, like, I was building my whole thoughts around this slate as there's one clear best game and everyone's going to be on it. Yeah, so I think the, the first thing that we need to understand is, one, the game isn't going overlooked. It's, it's coming in with, with weighted ownership to the cheap plays. Mm-hmm. And what that tells me, you know, we'd look at the expected ownership projections and the top two Kansas City players, as far as ownership goes, are Darrell Williams and then Nicole Hardman. And I think that exactly tells us what the field is seeing on the slate. I think one, we have five pay up players who are the only players on the slate that can realistically go for 40 or plus points on a semi-regular basis, right? You also have the perceived value flowing through the mid range of wide receiver. Obviously Chris Godwin is at 5.9 with the absence of Antonio Brown and Rob Gronkowski. Same game. You have uh, Mike Evans, same game, same team. Uh, We have Calvin Ridley playing um, a game that has been picking up steam as the week has gone on now projected to be the fifth highest owned wide receiver. Mm -hmm. And we have, mid-range tight ends that are expected to also garner ownership in Mike Gesicki, um, in uh, Ricky Seals-Jones in the bottom area there, but the other one in the mid-range being Dallas Goddard. And when you think about the, the state of the slate, I think that a large chunk of the field is going to feel as safe in those plays. And again, remember, pricing and DFS can be thought of as direct correlation to floor. So I think that we're seeing a situation where the field is thinking that the floor on these mid-range players matches or comes close to these higher-priced guys, and they're thinking that they can get similar expected range of outcomes as far as production goes for cheaper. And that is why we're seeing these higher-end guys, you know, the guys realistically who have shot at 40-plus fantasy points I think that's why we're seeing depressed ownership expectations there. Yeah, that make, I mean, that makes sense as far as your thought process, how the field's approaching it. I think the field's wrong, <laughs> to be blunt. Yeah, like, that was going to be my next point, is that is a mistake in my like, mind completely. Like the, really? I mean, are, are Nicole Hardman and, and, Dur- and Darrell Williams the best plays in Tennessee and, and, and on the Chiefs? Like, that just seems wild to me. You know, Nicole Hardman, he's fine. Right. He's he's a fine play in a vacuum. He, he's cheap. He's been on the field a lot. Uh, he has, you know, up to the ball in his hands. But we're also talking about a guy who his high output on the season is 16.6 DraftKings points. And that came in a game where he got 12 targets, which is about as you know as good as you could expect him to run. Um, you know, could he add a touchdown? Of course. Right. Like, does he have upside beyond that? Yeah. And like Darrell Williams also kind of turned into performance last week that was like, solid it wasn't a total smash and he got two touchdowns and when a guy gets two touchdowns and only turns in a solid performance that's kind of make that kind of makes me think like why would i like this guy doesn't have the ceiling i need in tournaments so it's it's odd to me i understand like i think you're right about the way the field is thinking about it it just feels it feels like a mistake to overlook the guys 
who have realistic chances at, you know, 35, 40 plus fantasy points um, in the best game environment of the slate. And I think you're right. Like, and I think you're right that there's, there's not a lot of clear value as well, which I think is making it hard for people to view, to pay up, um, to pay up for those stats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got like Rashad Bateman, you've got Tyler Johnson, um, guys like that are okay. Um, but there's no like clear smash value spot. So I think people are struggling to, build lineups that encompass that have more than one pay up option in them yeah and i think um we'll talk about what i think about the value here in a little bit because i want to i want to circle back to um darrell henderson and Nicole hardman darrell henderson basically or not darrell henderson i'm sorry darrell williams the other darrell darrell and daryl oh my god anyway i digress the Kansas City Chiefs starting running back Daryl Williams to alleviate any confusion there. How is he optimally played? Well, he's optimally played as a one-off or as a standalone because he, he derives so much of his value from touchdowns. And if he is scoring multiple touchdowns, he is directly taking away from the fantasy expectations of the rest of the remainder of the you know, Kansas City skill position players. How is Nicole Hardman? And this is the one that I think is going to give us a pretty significant edge this week. And it seems silly talking about a significant edge gained around Nicole Hardman. But Nicole Hardman, because we cannot confidently project a boost to weekly volume, and that's almost regardless of game flow, right? Because the clearest path for volume to increase on the Chiefs is going to be through Travis Kelsey and through Tyreek Hill. With that said, Nicole Hardman is an okay play, but the optimal way to play him is with a pairing with his quarterback in Patrick Mahomes, because he also is going to derive his value from touchdowns and from efficiency. We haven't seen that efficiency with the Kansas City run game as overall. That's why a majority of um, Darrell Williams' value comes from touchdowns. We have seen relative efficiency from Michael Hardman in the past. And in order to pay off on low volume, he's going to need efficiency to get him above the bonus, and he's going to need to score one or two touchdowns. What does each of those case do? It directly elevates Patrick Mahomes' expected value. And that leads us to a scenario where the majority, I think, from the ownership, the expected ownership of Nicole Hardman is going to be used as a one-off. It's going to be used as cheap exposure to this, you know, the best offense in the best game environment. When in reality, like you should be viewing this as what do I need to do on my roster to ensure that as little needs to go right as possible. And when it does go right, score me the most points as possible. And that very clearly is a Patrick Mahomes and Nicole Hardman pair. Throw in additional pass catcher if you'd like. But they are not likely to be played that way. And so I wanted to really, really anchor down on that thought process here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think you're right. I think you know, as I think through it, I think you're right that people are going to be building around other areas where they see there's better perceived value um, and then saying, but I need exposure to that game. So I'll throw in Hardman or I'll throw in Darrell Williams. Um, and I think you're right that that is not the optimal way to approach it. Um, it's, I think the field is overweighting confidence, in, their confidence in some guys like Devontae Adams and Cooper Cup, 
who I think are great and they do have enormous ceilings. We've seen that multiple times, right? Um, but I think they're underweighting the likelihood of someone like Tyree Kill to put up, you know, 40 plus points. Um, and I think it's sort of a, it's almost like a lazy way to build, right? Of saying like, here's the best game on the slate. I'll grab one cheat piece from it. So I have quote unquote exposure to it. Um, and in a vacuum, that might make sense. But when you account for ownership, and you realize that so much of the field is going to be approaching things that way with a lot of Nicole Hardman one-offs, like the right way to play Darrell Williams is as a one-off, right? Um, Cause he's, he gets there if he, if he steals touchdowns from the receivers, um, <clears throat> which, which dampers the rest of the Kansas city offense, as we saw last week. Um, but like, I think you're right that it's going to be, if people just say like, well, I have to have a chief and, and he, and, the, and those are the two chiefs I can afford. And so, you know, on the so on the roster they go, but like that kind of feels like almost lazy analysis and lazy roster construction. Yeah, hundred percent. Think about like as an MME player, what is going to be like the most likely rule for an optimizer? At least one chief, right? Like mm-hmm. if if people are are thinking through how they're going to be attacking the top offense in the league in the top expected game environment in the league, they're going to be like, okay, yeah, at least one chief. Let's run it. I'll throw those in. From a single entry and three max perspective, I can see the field taking a similar thought process, but through hand building in that they're going to, you know, piece together a lineup starting from the mid range of pricing and expanding outwards in both directions from there. And I think that's an interesting thing, or one of the key things to understand on the slate is the perceived value of the middle tier in running back in tight end and in wide receiver is going to draw the attention. And that is likely where people are going to be starting their roster builds this week. And when you think about how or which way it is likely to branch out from there, when you look at the Kansas city offense in particular, it is likeliest to branch out on the low side. And that leads to the expected higher ownership of Darrell Williams and Michael Hardman, because they're still going to be building with this, like, oh, I have to have like a Chiefs player. Oh, well, Tyreek Hill is unattainable, and Travis Kelsey. Well, I can talk myself out of him because he hasn't shown a ceiling, a true Kelsey ceiling game this year. And it, it's this weird, like, this weird game that people are going to be playing in their own heads. And pricing psychology has a lot to do with that. Recency bias has a lot to do with that, in particular, with Darrell uh, Williams scoring two touchdowns last week. And then when you look at the, the state of the slate overall and how players are going to feel comfortable fitting pieces together, we're highly unlikely to see very much Derrick Henry, Travis Kelsey lineups. We're very unlikely to see much, or I, I should say even more unlikely to see many Derrick Henry, Tyreek Hill lineups. I think that that $1,000 salary difference from Tyree Kill down to Travis Kelsey is going to play a fairly significant role in any of the correlated pairings and game stacks that we see from this game this week. Um, again, it is a level of comfortability that gives you brings that additional maneuverability with that extra salary. Yeah, it it feels gross to build a roster like that. By the way, I've been toying around with that, like trying to build a roster with Henry and Tyree Kill um, feels icky. <laughs> like it's you know because there's not a lot of really compelling value plays um you know like you plug in like let's say you want daryl henderson derrick henry tyree kill ricky seals jones at tight end 
um, let's say you're willing to go super cheap at quarterback and just like do a, a vomit a vomit stack with like Justin Fields and Mooney um, or Allen Robinson. And then even so, even with your cheap vomit stack, you still only have 4,200 left for the last two plays with what I, you know, with what I laid out, um, which is doable. Right. But like it, and that's the kind of roster I think I, I would like to build, but it feels gross. And so people are going to shy away from that. It just doesn't feel comfortable. But of course, as we know, getting away from comfort is how you win tournaments. That was what I was going to say for the next lead in is make yourself uncomfortable this week because the field is going to be very, very comfortable in their builds. They're going to be comfortable with their Chris Godwins. They're going to be comfortable with their Calvin Ridley's. They're going to be comfortable with their Darrell Henderson's. And it appears currently like a third of the field is going to be comfortable with the Cardinals defense. We're going to talk about that here shortly as well. But I want to challenge each and every one of you to build yourself into uncomfortability. We'll leave it at, I guess that's the most eloquent way I can put it. I want, I want to personally make myself uncomfortable when I'm building this week because I think that the field has an inordinate amount of certainty that I don't think exists. And I think where the certainty does exist is being overlooked. Yeah, I think, I think that makes that's sense. the best way to put it. I want to know, this is actually one one reason why I kind of like using an optimizer, um, because for me personally, I have a hard time hand building un, uh, tournament lineups that are uncomfortable enough. Um, and so an optimizer gets me away from that mentality. And, and I just I, I plug in my rules. I, I, I build the correlations in it. I hit run. Um, and then I don't have to think about like, well, that, oh, God, that roster looks so ugly. You know, like it, it gets me out of like my own head sometimes. So I find, I find value there. Yeah, it's, it is quite literally a learned skill for a human being to seek uncom or uncomfortability, to seek a scenario where you are, puts you in an uncomfortable situation that goes against like human DNA and the makeup of our conscious thought. So that is my challenge. I think to, to the listeners this week is Make yourself uncomfortable this week because an uncomfortable lineup is likely to ship GPPs. Now, with that kind of macro slate discussion out of the way, I want to go directly in transition to talking about some game environments where I think that the field is going to be attacking them incorrectly. And I think that's going to naturally lead us along our discussions of the various positions. You cool with that this week? Absolutely. Get into it. All righty. So, <laughs> obviously, you've seen a lot on OWS this week about the Atlanta Falcons and the Miami Dolphins game, and for for good reasons. But what I want to bring up is the amount of, I think, perceived under the radar attention that that game has been getting across the industry, to the point where I don't think that game is any longer a sneaky spot. And that leads me to the thought process of a lot of that, the fantasy appeal of that game still depends a great deal on Miami's end of, or I guess end of week pre-game um, injury report. They have the top, their top three current active cornerbacks are all questionable game time decisions. 
obviously Devontae Parker, Preston Williams are game time decisions. And that could vastly affect the overall outlook of this game. We know Miami has struggled against the pass. We know Miami has a high situation neutral pass rate. But we also know that they are fully capable of falling on their own sword. And <laughs> Tua has Tua, I call him Two-Face Tua because we can see a competent looking Tua and we can see a very mistake prone hold on to the ball, not trusting his his reads. And that the range of outcomes of Tua in particular leads me a little bit or I guess raises a little bit of the hairs on the back of my neck if this game is going to be popular. I'll leave it at that for now. What are your thoughts on that game? Yeah, similar. Um, it's interesting, right? Like you start looking at slates and uh, you start looking at you know, the clear best uh, games jump off the, the page most of the time. Um, and then you start looking around for like, where are the sort of the pivot games that we could target? Um, and part of the appeal of the pivot games is not that we expect them to outscore the primary game, right? It, it would be high. It's, it's possible, but highly unlikely for Atlanta, Miami to outscore Kansas City, Tennessee. What we're hoping to do when we target those games is get a better than expected outcome uh, at very low ownership. And, and with teams that have concentrated offenses, so that even though the, the game total might not score as many real points, that you can still generate a lot of fantasy points because the offenses are highly concentrated. Um, and so with Atlanta, Miami, I think it was it was a natural like it, it looked really tempting as a as a contrarian, a sneaky, a sneaky game to target, a contrarian game to target. But we're actually seeing ownership get quite high. And so I actually just put this in our, our chat for the um, for the. Uh, the pod where Atlanta Miami math is there's about 45% combined ownership on pass catchers plus another 20% on running backs uh, in current projections. Kansas City, Tennessee is 60% combined ownership on pass catchers plus another 35% on running backs. And then once you toss out Darrell Williams and once you toss out naked Nicole Hardman, um, then the ownership on these two games actually starts to look pretty close. And while I do think that Atlanta Miami is a good game environment, um, I don't think that it deserves to be that close in ownership to Kansas City, Tennessee. So I'm trying to decide, like, I, I don't want, I don't think I want to just like write it off entirely. Um, but I think it's a, it's a game where I went earlier in the week. I thought that that was going to be my primary sort of pivot game um, that I was going to try to target really heavily. Uh, and that's no longer the case for me. I think I'm going to move off of that as my primary pivot game uh, and move towards Philly, Las Vegas. I love it. I was going to ask you to throw out one of your favorite pivot game environments. I do want to real quickly, before I let you, I'm going to throw it back to you to talk about that uh, Philly Vegas game environment. I do really want to quickly bring up something that I talked about with Todd, actually, about 30 minutes prior to this podcast and something that really shifted how I was viewing the slate overall. Part of that discussion and part of those ideas were the exploration of this game, the Miami and Atlanta game, and an interesting perspective I think that Todd brought up is the tendency is going to want to be to overstack this game, thinking it is sneaky, or play one-offs from this game. 
my initial reaction to that realization is I would be much more willing to play Tua with a single pass catcher than I normally would. And I think that I was so focused on this particular game environment being one of the, you know, one or two away from the, the chalk games that I was thinking overstack was the only way to go. And I think that that is incorrect. And then it led me along the, the realization that the overall like game environment is almost entirely predicated on Tua's performance. And if Tua, again, there's a wide range of expected or potential outcomes because we still don't know a lot of the injury situations from the Dolphins in particular. If Devontae Parker comes back, he is likely to be low-owned. If Preston Williams comes back, he is likely to be low-owned. If they both miss, we can expect heavy ownership on the remaining you know, two primary pass catchers in this offense in Mike Kosicki and Jalen Waddell. Knowing all that, I think the field is not going to adjust to the still heavy uncertainty revolving around that game in the form of those injury unknowns. I think they are likely going to be fixated, as I was before speaking to Todd, about, you know, around the highest EV way of attacking this game without knowing the full picture. And I think that is through either game or team overstacks. And I think that is through either, you know, one-offs or correlated one-offs. And I think that we need to change our certainty with that situation because there isn't really certainty right now. We know what we know. We know that each team likes to pass the ball. We know that Miami leads the league in situation neutral pass rate. We know that Tua can be two-faced Tua. What we don't know is where those expected targets are likely to flow through Miami. We have a good idea with Atlanta, but this is also the first game with um, Russell Gage back in over three weeks. So there is some level of interesting dynamics and shifts with respect to expected snap rates. Cordero Patterson, how much is he going to play now with Russell Gage back? Because he basically took over the Russell Gage role through the pass game. We have obviously Calvin Ridley and Kyle Pitts who their, their workload is a little more on the certain side, but we still haven't seen Kyle Pitts perform in the box scores with Calvin Ridley on the field. You know, he, the one game that Kyle Pitts has really popped off for both Russell Gage and Calvin Ridley were out. So there, there's a lot more. And again, I, I don't want the listeners to think that I am off this game completely. I just want to offer a different perspective to question the level of certainty in this game because we still have a large number of uncertain situations surrounding it. With that, X, I'm going to kick it over to you to add anything on that game and then talk to me a little bit about the Philly-Vegas game. Uh, I don't think I have much to add, honestly, to your Miami-Atlanta coverage. I think, you know, when you're... The important thing to always remember is when you're targeting these um, sort of less the second tier games, there's there are more things that can derail those games than there are sort of the first tier games. Right. There's more ways for Atlanta, Miami to fail, um, not just as a game, but in terms of failing and generating like, you know, attorney attorney winning uh, fantasy scores. There's more ways for that game to fail than there are for 
can, for Chiefs uh, Titans to fail. And the reason that we embrace that higher chance of failure in tournaments uh, is because we can get it at lower ownership and often like and lower salaries and sometimes like, you know, low salary stacking options. Um, but really, it's it's about ownership. It's about, you know, we're willing to embrace that higher volatility in the game environment because we can get it at a low ownership. And that allows us and generally at lower salaries as well, which allows us more flexibility in the rest of our rosters. And so when you take away the low ownership component and say, actually, this game is now going to be pretty highly owned, um, then that 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 takes away one of the compelling cases for me to want overexposure to it. Um, <clears throat> so Philly Las Vegas, the reason I and I put this, I wrote this up in the Oracle, the reason I like this game. So one is, you know, there's only two, there are only two games that are around 50 points or higher uh, that have uh, that have a spread of around of less than a touchdown. And that's uh, Chiefs Titans and uh eagles raiders and eagles raiders like when i wrote the i haven't looked at the if the line moved but it was 49 and a half when i wrote this in the oracle um so right about 50 right it's that sort of second tier game where we see we often see very low ownership um so this game is only really a touchdown under um kansas city tennessee so this is a game where you know if we played this late 100 times kansas city tennessee would be the highest scoring game the majority of the times but this game could be up there, right? This game might be up, might be the second or third uh, likeliest to be the highest total game uh, at the end if we ran a 100-game sample. Um, both teams have seen their production come through the air. Uh, like, I think, was it uh, Derek Carr is second in the league in passing yards. Jalen Hurts is like, he, I don't, depending on the scoring system, he's one of the top five QBs in the league in fantasy. Um, uh, I think he's fourth in DraftKings scoring. Um, and he's significantly cheaper than any of the guys who scored more. Um, like the Raiders have, let's see, where is it? I, I broke this down. The Raiders have 1,832 passing yards this year and 479 rushing yards. The Eagles have about 1,400 passing yards and a little under 700 rushing yards, but 300 of those rushing yards have come from Hertz. So both teams' uh, running backs have only gener- have generated fewer than 500 rushing yards. So these are these are offenses that are concentrated either through the air for the Raiders or through Jalen Hurts for the Eagles. Um, both teams have very cheap pass catching options. So Darren Waller is 6,700, but everyone else in this game is 5,500 or less. Um, both teams spread the ball around. So there isn't like, there aren't really obvious guys to target, uh, which in some ways is frustrating, um, but in some ways is advantageous because that keeps people off the game. Because they say, well, if I play that game, who do I pick? You know, do I pick Henry Ruggs? Do I pick Hunter Renfro? Do I pick brian edwards like do i pick darren waller like it's there's not a clear you know one or one or two guys that you can invest in and have a really high degree of confidence that they're going to be the guys to see the volume and so as an mme player um that smells like opportunity to me so if you look at we talked about the combined ownership on um on the falcons game uh, and on the chiefs game the combined ownership for pass catchers in this game uh waller and goddard projecting for on 10 percent each um, but then like Hunter Renfro is for some odd reason, 10%. And I think he's, he's like a floor play, not a ceiling play. You got like Devonta Smith, 7.8%. Henry Ruggs, about 4%. Quez Watkins, 2%. If you want to stomach some real volatility and you're playing MME and you want some exposure to like Riegor and Edwards, they're going to be almost unowned. So this is the kind of environment that I was hoping that Atlanta Miami would be. And Atlanta Miami is a little bit better of a game environment from a concentration of volume standpoint. We have a clearer idea of where the volume is going. To Hilo's point, uh, the Falcons are getting healthier, and so that throws some question marks on the Falcons' distribution of volume. Um, but I think we still have a better idea of where it's going in that game than where we than where the ball is going in this game. Um, but we're, that's offset here by lower ownership. 
uh, in the the Vegas Eagles game and a higher t- and a higher game total where it's more likely that this game uh, produces you know a higher score, which means more touchdowns, which means more fantasy goodness. So this is the game that actually has begun to uh, begun to focus on as my as my second kind of primary game of the week after uh, Chiefs Titans and part of like the salary value is phenomenal. You can build a stack of this game and then still have enough salary to do one-offs of like, you can build a roster with Derrick Henry and Tyree kill uh, that is that that's based around a stack of this game. Um, and that's the kind of like, when I look for secondary games, that's the kind of game that I love, or I can make a, I can make a game stack around the best game of the slate uh, with a couple of players um, but then have my like quarterback and uh, a couple of pass catchers from the less attractive game at much at very low ownership is a way that both differentiates me um, as well as um, as getting me, uh, I think, exposure to a game that could shoot out with a higher likelihood than the field seems to be betting on. Absolutely love that thought process. I'm going to offer another perspective on finding these under-owned offenses. And that is looking to the large spread games on the week. And I want to be very careful about how I talk about these because there are basically two classes of large spread games. There are these games where we can expect the home favorite to remain aggressive regardless of the box score or the score on the scoreboard. And there are games where we can expect the home favorite to more or less try and just get through the week healthy and add an additional win to their resume. In the latter sense, I think the Green Bay Packers fall into the, hey, let's make it through this game with a win. And we will you know, move along on our journey as the second best record in the NFC. The other team in a large spread who I think is going to more or less play to that game flow and game design is are the Arizona Cardinals against Houston. Mm-hmm. When you look at the their opponents, the Packers are going to be the li- large driving factor in their game with the Washington football team as the likeliest to dictate the flow and the pace of that game. Well, what are the Packers? What do they want to do? Well, they want to slow the game down. They want to get by on efficiency and they want to basically allow their efficiency on offense to rule and control the game. They're not going to speed things up. Washington might attempt to, but the game is most likely to be driven by the Packers. Conversely for the Cardinals, that game is likeliest to be dictated and paced by Houston, which is an interesting thing to consider because Houston is going to stick to their antiquated game plan regardless of the outcome on the scoreboard, regardless of the game flow. They are not, they have not showed increased aggression tendencies all season, like regardless of how the game is actually playing out. So Houston is actually the driving factor of the game environment with Arizona. And that is a detriment to that game environment. The other side of that discussion are the Rams against Detroit. And I, I think I unpacked that game environment um, sufficiently and hit it pretty heavily in the game write-up. To summarize, Detroit has become the most pass-heavy 
and a top basically five pace of play offense in the second half of their games. They are built around a, or their, their head coaching is trying to establish this, like never quit. We're going to out effort everybody. And we are always going to fight for everything. And that is translated into increased second half aggression, increased second half pace of play. And that boosts the offensive expectation for the Rams because we can expect them to see additional offensive plays run from scrimmage. We can expect them to remain aggressive because McVay remains aggressive deep in games in a similar sense. And this is a game that came up in Todd and I's conversation as something that is going entirely overlooked. And I think it is a mistake. And that is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You're probably thinking, how is, how are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going overlooked when we're expecting heavy ownership on Chris Godwin, moderate ownership on Mike Evans, moderate ownership on Tyler Johnson and uh, moderate ownership on Leonard Fournette. Well, that to answer that, we'll look at the expected ownership of Tom Brady. Tom Brady is currently projected for anywhere between 6 and 8% ownership on this slate. And when we think about how this offense is likely to attack this game, the driving factor of the game environment is going to be through Tampa Bay. We look at their last two games to kind of highlight this or come to this realization. Week five against Miami. They ended up winning 45 to 17. They scored three touchdowns in the fourth quarter and Tom Brady attempted 41 pass attempts. Okay. Store that away in the old mental box. Let's look at week six against Philadelphia. They were up in this game 28 to seven in the third quarter and they ended up winning 28 to 22. Tom Brady attempted 42 pass attempts in a game that they controlled early in the third quarter by three scores. So what does that tell me? That that tells me that tells me that Bruce Arians is remaining aggressive with his offense deep into games. It tells me that obviously Tampa Bay has one of the higher situation neutral pass rates. And it tells me that we can expect Tom Brady to be throwing the football. Well, if three of Tom Brady's pass catchers are expected to be in the top 12 to 13 in expected ownership, but Tom Brady is not all the way down at six to 8%. He is currently the quarterback one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in expected ownership. That tells me that the field is looking to pick onesie twosies from this offense. And I think that Tampa Bay might be a sneaky team stack in a game where we can confidently project a narrowed target distribution. We have Chris Godwin. We have uh, unknowns at the tight end position because we don't know the health status of their two remaining tight ends. We have Mike Evans. We have Tyler Johnson, who I think when I analyze this game environment, I think he almost one for one directly steps into Antonio Brown's usage and role. For that to be the case at 3K salary, I think this is one of those aha pieces where we might look back and be like, oh, clearly he was going to see, you know, six to eight, seven to nine targets somewhere in that range. And a majority of those are going to be, you know, intermediate to deep targets, those routes that Antonio Brown was running. 
So I think this is one of the more interesting aspects to kind of piece through from the macro perspective discussion that we had earlier. And when we have these large game spreads is picking and choosing like which offense we can confidently project for expected volume for expected production and that we can expect for it uh, increase or on par offensive plays run from scrimmage. And those two offenses, I think the Rams, again, they are expected to garner individual ownership, but I don't think that game or team stacks, I should say, is going to carry large aggregate ownership. And Tampa Bay, I think, is one of the sneakier offenses on the week if you attack it from a different perspective as the field, which is likely to be one-offs. All right, that was a lot of talking, dude. I covered a lot there. Your thoughts on those two situations? Yeah, why don't I just add to that? Like, <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to think of like how to add to this. Um, like beyond just saying I agree with you. Yeah, so... Brady has only attempted fewer than 41 passes once this season, right? He is averaging um, something like 46 or 47 pass attempts per game. No, maybe not that. Maybe it's like 45. Um, but whatever. That's a lot, right? That is a lot of passing volume. Um, and, and the Bucks have, you know, and including in, non, in, in games that have not been super competitive. And so like he's, he's put up over 30 DraftKings points in four or six starts, which is what you would need from him. Um, so he's gotten there four out of six times and 45 per game. Just looked it up 45 and, per game. And like, and now we have, and the reason we shied away from the bucks, the reason that, that people shy away from playing the bucks in general is what Hilo said that it's, okay, where's the ball going? Right? Like that's, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's sort of like the Raiders and the Eagles too, of saying, where's the ball going? How do I, you know, how do I play this game when I can't tell where the ball's going? I don't know who to stack it with. And so guess what? Now Gronk's out. Now, you know, Chris Scott, or it's not Chris Scott, now Antonio Brown's out. Now we know where the ball's going with a higher degree of accuracy. And like, look, they're the Bucks. They're going to spread it. They're going to spread it around. They'll mix in some guys. But if your quarterback's throwing 40 plus times a game, there's enough volume to get there. And I remember it was a couple weeks ago where it was Bucks against Miami. And, uh, you know, like they had, they were one of the highest total games of the week and nobody played them. Or not nobody, but they're pretty low owned. And uh, surprise, surprise, a Bucks double stack is, you know, was was smashing tournaments that week. And so I think it's likely we could see something like this again. And, and you know, and you hit on just a point that I think is very relevant um, and a point that I think about a lot, which is whenever I see really high ownership on, um, on a, on a team, but not their quarterback. The direction that I tend to lean with that information is I should either stack this game or I should not play it. Um, you know, like what, what, when people try to pick the one off from a team that's going to do well, they're trying to thread a needle of saying like, I think the game, the game's not going to smash because if it's the whole game smashes, then I lose because I only have one player from it. Um, but the game's going to hit and I can pick the exact right player who's going to hit. And that's hard, right? That's like, you're just, you're trying to pick uh, from a very th sort of thin uh, range of outcomes there in order to make that work. And so I love, uh, finding those games where there's a lot of ownership on the individual plays, but no one's stacking it and just saying, cool, I'll just, I'll just stack that. Like, why would I not do that? It seems so obvious in hindsight. And I feel like we get those, oh, duh, of course it was obvious in hindsight moments a lot with games like this. Love it. I like how this podcast and the slate is shaping up. I'm pretty stoked about this. Um, Me too, my friend. 
So we covered, we covered Tampa, we covered Philly, Las Vegas, we covered the Rams. Another thing, last thing I'll say about the Rams is think about ways to attack their side of that game. Again, they can hit without Detroit hitting because Detroit has increased their you know, pace of play and pass rate in the second half. And we don't need Detroit to succeed for the Rams to succeed. So think about that when you're building, if you're building around the game. We talked about Atlanta, Miami. We talked about Green Bay, Washington. We talked pretty in depth about Kansas City and Tennessee. And those are the, for the most part, the primary, I think, games or game environments, or at least half of the game environment from one side or the other. The last team that I want to talk about before we real quickly touch on some some other hidden upside spots is the New York Giants. And the reason that is almost entirely built around the offensive injuries that they have on the team. We have Saquon Barkley out. We have Kenny Galladay out. We have Kadarius Tony out. We have Sterling Shepard, who is sounding like a true game time decision from um, Mike McCarthy. He is going to test it pregame and see how he feels. Basically we have, Oh God, other injuries on that team. CJ board broke his arm last week. He is on IR likely out for the season. We have Darius Slayton who is apparently likely to return. And then finally we have Jahan Ross who is looking like a true game time decision. That is a lot of injuries. So much so that they called up Dante Pettis, who you know makes his second, I guess, practice squad team in as many years uh, from the practice squad. And he came out and saw 11 targets on just over 60% of the offensive snaps in week six against the Rams. We have Colin Johnson, who is healthy after missing um, the start of the year. He missed the first two games. He has played significant snaps in two games, week three and week six, turning seven targets into five catches for 51 yards in week three and seeing five targets, which he turned into two catches for 21 yards in week six last week. And we have Darius Slayton, who is largely for the, I would say the forgotten member on this offense, primarily working a intermediate to deep role. His first two games prior to being injured, he saw seven targets and six targets going for 65 yards and 54 yards and one score on those looks. Now we consider like who are the vibe. Oh, and Evan Ingram. I forgot about him. He is legitimately questionable for this game as well. Although he is kind of a shell of his previous self struggling with drops, struggling with focus, all that good stuff. So we have a a pass catching. Yeah, I know. Right. But like, so we can almost regard his status as inconsequential. So we have this like potential for Darius Slayton, Colin Johnson and Dante Pettis to be the primary pass catchers for this offense against a Carolina Panthers team who we can expect to kind of control the overall tempo of this game. Now we look at like what Daniel Jones has done in his, his previous starts this season he has a low pass total in fully healthy games of 32 his last two fully healthy games against the rams and against new orleans who is a slow paced team 
He threw 40 pass attempts against New Orleans in week four. He threw 51 pass attempts against the Rams in week six. If Daniel Jones is dropping back and throwing the ball 40 plus times, where are those passes going to? Well, it's one of those aforementioned three players of Darius Slayton, Colin Johnson, and Dante Pettis. If Sterling Shepard and John Ross miss. Again, this is another situation like Miami where a large portion of my interest will be dictated by like 90 minutes prior to kick. Luckily, this is an early game and we get a good look at it, similar to the Atlanta and Miami game. So these are two situations where I think the field is not regarding high enough for potential hidden upside. Your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts is that Daniel Jones in some early like runs I was doing for enemy is actually one of my like top five on quarterbacks on the week. Um, I don't know if that'll shake out by the end of the day, to be clear. Um, but I was doing some early runs this morning and, you know, Jones, like when you look at when you dip down into the cheap range of quarterback, you're like, OK, do I want to find a guy who can get me like 20 points or 25 points? And that's what I that's that's what I hope for. Uh, or is there anyone down there who could get me over 30 points? And Daniel Jones can get you over 30 points. He's done it. Well, I guess he had like 29.5 one game, but he's basically done it twice this year. And those stacks are incredibly cheap. I think I think you're right, right? Like it's uh, Sterling Shepard is such a volume hog when he's active. Um, I mean, he's seen nine targets, 10 targets, three targets in a game he left early and then 14 targets. So I think Shepard's fine as a play if he's healthy. Um, but if he's, but he's not like an exceptional value or anything, right? He's like a fine play to mix in, but if he misses, like you just have value town galore. I have a soft spot for Dante Pettis, um, cause I'm a 49ers fan. And I remember when he was like a promising young player on the 49ers before it just all went South for him. Um, and I played him a lot when he was on the 49ers. And so like, you know, seeing him get 11 targets is encouraging. And I think, you know, there's, he's clearly not an all-star, right? Like there's something the 49ers cut him for a reason. But, um, you know, it's, I tend to have more faith in a guy like Dante Pettis, who has shown success at the NFL level, um, than some random fill-in who I've never heard of. And so, you know, but it's just, and it's just a volume game. I, I also think that the Carolina Panthers defense uh, started off the season looking like impenetrable, right? Like they completely overachieved in their first three games, admittedly against the Jets, who were bad, uh, the Saints, who are capable of being bad. Um, because Winston and the Texans who were bad. And then they gave up 28 or sorry, they gave up 36 to Dallas. They gave up 21 to Philly, which is kind of a dysfunctional offense. And they gave up 34 to Minnesota, albeit in overtime. So, you know, they're, they're not a, I don't, they're not an elite defense by any means. I think they're kind of a mid, they're kind of a middling defense. So I don't think they're anything to be scared of. And so I, I love it. I love, I love the giants. Uh, if, if Shepard is out on a week where we don't have a lot of value, and we're and that's attracting people to value plays like uh, Bateman, who I personally think is a really thin value play, um, and Tyler Johnson, who is a pretty good value play. Um, but like people are being attracted to these really thin value plays, and especially if we get late news, um, you know, Sunday morning. Like right now, we're not seeing ownership projected on the Giants like at all um, on the Giants cheap guys. But if we get news Sunday morning, uh, it'll go up a little bit. But like. You know, the field slowed. The field has a hard time reacting to that kind of thing, that kind of news, um, really quickly and smartly. So, like, you can build rosters predicated around Shepard being out beforehand, so that way you're not scrambling on Sunday morning 
Um, and that way you you know what you would do if Shepard's out. You kind of have your like if then swap ready. So like that way you're, you know, while the field's trying to like just go rush and really quickly adjust, you've already thought it out ahead of time and you're prepared and know exactly what you're going to do if Shepard misses um, in playing, you know, Pettis, Slayton, Ross, Johnson, whoever. Um, but I love it. I love the game. Um, I think that that game is going somewhat overlooked. Uh, not and and I kind of like I like the Panther side. I mean, Chuba Hubbard's projected for ownership, so I think it's stackable. Like Chuba Hubbard's projected for ownership uh, because he's a cheap, you know, three down running back essentially. Um, DJ Moore's coming in higher owned than I had hoped. I thought he was going to go totally overlooked here, um, but Robbie Anderson, man, I can't quit him. Like he's seeing so many targets, so many air yards. At some point, he's got to catch the ball, right? <laughs> I hope. So like I think you can I think you can stack the game too. I love it, man. I think that's all the game environments sufficiently covered. Do you have anything else to add for game environments? No, but I do just want to note that Robbie Anderson last year last week saw eleven targets and had eleven receiving yards, which I think is probably an NFL record. <laughs> that's like Joe Val going like three for twenty-one on layups. Oh my god. <laughs> so, so painful. I had so much Joe Val. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's a uh, that's an NBA opening night um, reference for those who are lost. Uh, all right, man. Let's quickly tie up the loose ends at each position. We'll start at the quarterback. Talk to me about some underowned or underappreciated quarterbacks that you find yeah, yourself gravitating to. <clears throat> so when I look for, like, I'm generally not super worried about quarterback ownership for one because it tends to be spread out. Like, you rarely see quarterbacks get over like 20 percent ownership. Um, but I do think that said, like despite Atlanta, Miami catching some steam, Matt Ryan is still projecting for pretty low ownership, like around 5%, um, which I think makes him attractive. And so I think if you do want to play Atlanta, Miami, playing it with Matt Ryan is, you know, stacking it with Ryan is a good way to go. And it gets away from some of the other ownership that we're seeing on that game. It looks like that game's attracting a lot of like one-off play ownership. Um, Ryan Tannehill at 5% seems kind of criminally low for a quarterback in the best game environment where like, look, Tannehill has not been good this season. The Titans have been succeeding when Derrick Henry scores three touchdowns, which he appears to do just about every week. Um, but like, that's not going to happen every single game, right? Touchdown variance is wild. Um, I think on two of Henry's three touchdowns in the last game against the Bills, uh, there was a passing play before it that could easily have been a touchdown and just wasn't caught. So, you know, like, I think he's an option. As I talked about, I like Daniel Jones. Um I, Justin Fields is a guy I'm just going to keep going back to because I will always play quarterbacks against Tampa just because of volume. Like teams don't run against Tampa. Uh, you know, like Tampa faces like, I don't, I don't know what the average is, but it's an absurdly no, low number of rushing plays per game and an absurdly high number of passing plays per game because you can't run on them. Um, and then I just like, I, I, I like the Ravens defense, but I also like Joe Burrow. Um, and the reasoning here is again we have a somewhat we have a somewhat narrow distribution of targets between the three primary wide receivers. Uh, we have a passing offense that started the year off really slow, where like it seemed like they were kind of trying to shelter Burrow coming back from his injury, but then uh, in weeks four and five, Burrow dropped back thirty-two and thirty-eight times, and those were in close games, uh, one narrow win, one narrow loss. And then last week in a game that they won against Detroit, 34 to 11, Burrow dropped back 29 times, which isn't huge, but in a blowout, it's higher than we saw earlier, like when he, when he dropped back 18 times against Philly in week three. 
We're also seeing Burrow run a little more where the first couple of weeks he didn't run at all. Um, in the last few weeks, he's been running like four times, like, like four carries a game. So I think like what we're seeing there is the Bengals were kind of sheltering Burrow a little bit at the beginning of the season. Uh, remember, the Bengals were uh, I think Burrow was on track to lead the NFL in pass attempts last season before he got hurt. They were of extremely pass heavy offense. And we also know that they're a significant underdog to the Ravens. Uh, the Ravens have a good run defense. It's going to be harder for the Bengals to get their run game going. So uh, if the Ravens get out to a, a lead early, like I think we could see Burrow drop back 35 plus times pretty easily. He has really good weapons um, to pass to. And and he's one that's going like, I mean, the ownership projection I have on him is under 1%. So like that's not a conviction play by any means, but I think he deserves to be more than 1% owned. Yeah, I I like that thought process. And one interesting aspect that I want to bring up that this is the, I think the final thought that came from my discussion with with Todd is there's a couple of spots this weekend, speaking strictly for defenses, where I think both sides of the game are viable. And what I mean by that is the defense and the offense. One of those spots is Tampa Bay, which I, I kind of talked to my newfound like intrigue with that offense. And the other spot is this Baltimore defense that um, you just got done speaking to. We look at the basically we look at the important things. We know Baltimore blitzes a high rate. We know Joe Burrow has thrown the third most interceptions in the league so far with seven, just two behind Zach Wilson. Yes, Zach Wilson has played one less game, but I digress. Interesting side note, Patrick Mahomes has scored or has thrown eight interceptions this year, which is uh, interesting enough um, for the second highest value. But anyway, I digress. We know that Cincinnati might be forced to pass at an increased rate this week because um, nose tackle um, Brandon Williams is healthy for the Ravens. We expect the Ravens to find success offensively. All that stuff that you just talked about. So those two spots are interesting spots where I think that both sides are viable and even on the same lineup. Like you could, I think you could even like stack or pair um, the quarterback with one of his pass catchers and the opposing defense being either Tampa Bay and, uh, or the Baltimore Ravens. Very aggressive. Yeah. I feel like you need, you need a very specific outcome there, right? Cause defenses, defenses get, um, points through, uh, sacks, turnovers, and then defensive touchdowns and sacks and turnovers kill drives, which means then the quarterback doesn't get the ball back. Um, and, and, you know, the drive's dead and there's no more scoring from the, from that quarterback. Um, but if there's like a pick six or a fumble six, then the quarterback gets the ball back right away. And we've actually seen this play out. Like this is a inversely correlated play to be clear, but we've seen this happen a couple of times. Like I, I remember I've, I've seen a couple of um, like Millie maker winning lineups that had uh, a quarterback and the opposing defense. And it's, it's rare to be clear. Um, it's not the kind of thing that I think is a safe play by any means. Um, but I think it's one that you could at least consider um, not ruling out if you're doing really large field play. Yep. My thoughts. Exactly. Uh, you hit on all the quarterbacks. Um, I've got nothing really to add other than I am highly intrigued by Justin Fields. Um, I like the Daniel Jones call. Tua also at only 5.5 is highly interesting to me and Matt Ryan at 5.7. 
one of the things that Todd uh, really brought up to me also when we spoke was my probably biggest leak in my personal game is that I place too much emphasis and confidence in bad offenses. And, you know, that kind of goes back into you Todd always making fun of me for playing Zach Wilson or the jets or Sam Darnold, or, you know, these spots where I'm betting highly on bad offenses to overperform that, that is what led me down the thought process for Tom Brady and his pass catchers this week. And that is something that I'm going to be working to remedy as not going all in on poor offenses. I want to caveat that with, you know, me highlighting Matt Ryan to attack of Iola, Daniel Jones and Justin Fields here. I do have interest in those guys down here, but we are betting on outlier performances with those offenses, which should ring true for most of them. Matt Ryan is probably the lone exception there. All right. Are, how are we, what are we supposed to do if we don't get to make fun of you for playing Zach Wills every week? I'm not just going to, I'm, I'm going to keep playing him. This is the <laughs> second week in a row or third. This is the third week in a row where he's not on the main slate. And I don't know what to do with my hands right now. <laughs> Wait, isn't he? Or, he is on the main slate. What are you talking about? Oh, he they're, is. They're playing oh. Patriots. Oh, maybe I just overlooked uh, that. You're, you're in trouble now. <laughs> Play the Patriots defense. Okay, got it. <laughs> Let's jump over real quick to running back, and we'll finish this up and open it up for questions. Top two running backs on the play on paper are very clearly Derrick Henry and Darrell Henderson. We have Leonard Fournette in an interesting setup, um, likely in a regressatory, that's a word I just made up, regressatory volume spot. We have Cordero Patterson, who I just got to mention him real quick as being hilariously priced at 6.3. Okay, that was enough. He's he's like 8K on FanDuel. (laughs) Dude, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Don't don't do that. I mean, do it if you want, but I I won't be going there. Um, The other tightly knit kind of expected ownership conglomeration is in the middle range with Chuba Hubbard, with DeAndre Swift, with Darrell Williams, all of those guys priced between 6.1 and 5.8. That's really where a vast majority of the fields um, interest at the running back position is going to be. I t- basically, I'm going to be extremely heavy on Derrick Henry and Darrell Henderson. Personally, I think those are the best plays on paper in a vacuum on the slate with the most amount of certainty. How are you seeing the running back position this week? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it, right? Darrell Henderson and Derek Henry are clearly the best running back plays, like hands down. Um, they're the only guys who protect for over 20 points, raw points. Um, and I don't tend to care about running back ownership a lot because, you know, the, the position is less volatile. Um, the other guys that attract my interest. So I always go down and make a list of who are the home favorite running backs and then who are the home favorite three down running backs. Like I do the checklist of, oh God, it was it, is it M Johnson's course who has the checking the boxes in the marketplace. Um, I use that kind of approach yeah. too, where it's like, who's a home favorite running back? Who's a, you know, who's a, a bell cow running back who gets past game work. Um, and then who has a good adjusted line yards matchup. And so like Chubba Hubbard is checks those, but well, he's not a home favorite, but he's a, he's a road favorite and he's, he's getting, you know, all the running back touches on that team. Leonard Fournette, I'm a little shakier on, like he's a home favorite. He's been getting past game work, but he got 28 touches last week. And that doesn't feel sustainable to me. Um, 
he got you know he he got he scored two touchdowns but the bucks have like the bucks tend to score through the air um much more than on the ground so like i just i have a hard time really like eating leonard fernet chalk even though the spot looks good on paper um i'd rather play hubbard Darrell williams i think is just an objectively terrible play and i will not play him um or maybe have very very little uh let's see swift i think is a great play um, he's like the garbage time king of the NFL this year. I guess he's he's taking over the Blake Bortles crown from a couple of years ago. Um, Aaron Jones is another guy I like. His ownership is higher than I was going to guess at, at about 15%. And so I was thinking of this as another possible, like Aaron Jones's leverage off of Chalk Devontae uh, week, which I, I love those weeks. Um, but he's still, he's a, he's a home favorite, uh, three down running back who, you know, his, his, his volume is a little capped, right? Like they don't tend to give him more than 20 touches, but he gets past game work. He's on one of the highest total teams of the week. Um, I feel a lot better about Jones than Fournette, to be honest, uh, although there is a price difference. Um, Josh Jacobs is another home favorite in a positive matchup. I think people are still fixated on this, like teams don't run on Philly um, because that's been true for so long. Like it's like, it's been a thing for years, right? Like don't play running backs against Philadelphia because teams don't run against them much like it's true now for the Bucks, And this year, Philly has been horrible against the run. Like they're one of the worst defenses by DVOA against the run right now uh, in this, in the year in the season so far, so I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, Eagles run D 25th by DVOA 28th by yards allowed per carry. Um, Josh Jacobs is a home favorite running back. Great matchup. Um, his, his seat, his, Touch ceiling is also seems to be a little bit capped around 20 or so, um, but in a great matchup. And, you know, he's been getting some pass game work. He has 13 targets on the year. Like Kenyon Drake kind of came out of nowhere last week, but really Kenyon Drake has not been used super heavily. And even Kenyon Drake scored two touchdowns last week, but he only got six touches, right? So like Jacobs is really getting the, the work in this backfield. So I think he's an interesting tournament play. I'm 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 also probably going to end up having some amount of both Mike Davis and Miles Gaskin because I still believe in the roles there and the matchups against vulnerable run defenses. Um, Gaskin, especially again, if Parker is out, we saw this. You know, was it last week when, or was it week before when Gaskin caught ten of ten targets for two touchdowns against the Bucks? Um, but Atlanta, yeah, before. you know, Atlanta also is this a team where there's this story. You know, you 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 play pass catching running backs against Falcons because their defensive scheme is vulnerable to that. And I think that has somewhat still held up. They're not, they don't seem to be as, uh, it doesn't seem to be quite the cheat code it used to be. Um, but I will definitely have some Gaskin and definitely have some Mike Davis because they also offer some leverage off of the highly owned passing games in those, um, in those, in that game. And, and I think that they're just, they're running backs who have ceilings and they're cheap running backs. Like there aren't a lot of cheap running backs right around 5k, um, that pe- that that look like they're in good spots. Miles Sanders, people are going to play, and I'm I'm kind of torn on that one because like <laughs> Miles Sanders' single like unique uh, skill set seems to be playing a lot of snaps, but yet while normally playing a lot of snaps correlates strongly to running back production, um, he's on the field a lot, but they never give him the ball. Like Miles Sanders has <laughs> he only has 57 carries on the year in six games, so like. I get it. I mean, I guess, you know, at some point he's probably going to have a big game, but like I have a hard time. I think that's where people are going for the running back value is he's the cheapest running back that's projected for like any material ownership. Um, but I'm probably going to shy away from that one. Quick digression. Miles Sanders 
is to NFL as Avery Bradley is to NBA. <laughs> Just wind sprints. Did you see he played 22 minutes and did not record a counting stat? That is hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Who's the, the other guy who does that? Was it Solomon Hill, I think, does that? And um, it's got a couple guys like that. It's like they're, they're <laughs> out there all the time. You're like, the production's going to come. They're playing so much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I digress. You pretty much throw, I'm going to throw out one more, actually, okay. um, which is another cheap running back, which is JD McKissick. Um, and the reasoning here is Antonio Gibson is banged up. He's expected to play. He has like this weird shin injury where like something's broken in there. Um, and it's like a pain tolerance thing. Right. And so, you know, he left the game against Kansas City early, um, took some time off and he's probably going to be active. But like if you're the if you're the football team, why do you push him here? Um, especially if they start falling out of the game. And so I think that that. You know, that gives there's some opportunity for McKissick's role to just increase a little bit if Gibson's role is scaled back on a little bit. And I want to point out, we had this conversation last week and you talked about McKissick as, as a as having a path to 10 targets. And I was like, well, he's only seen six on the year at most. And guess how many targets <laughs> he had last year or last week? He had 10. Um, and so last week, McKissick had 10 targets. He also had eight carries, which was a season high for him. And, you know, against the Packers, I could see a similar workload again if they scale, if they take it a little easy on Gibson and if the Packers dominate the game as they're expected to. I could see McKissick getting another like, you know, six to 10 carries and six to 10 targets. And at 5K on a week where we don't have a lot of running back value, that seems pretty viable. Love it. Absolutely love it. Particularly love you telling me I was right. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, you hey, nailed pretty much. <laughs> you, my friend. <laughs> you pretty much nailed everything at the running back position. I have nothing to add. Let's jump over to wide receivers. We spoke to a lot of these spots here. Is there any spot that you're seeing that we didn't touch on earlier? Um, I want to mention Rashad Bateman because he's looking to be a really popular value play. So Bateman is 3,400. Sammy Watkins is out. Um, <clears throat> Bateman played, you know, I don't remember what percentage, but a lot a lot of the snaps last week. He saw six targets in a game uh, that Baltimore just dominated, right? Like Lamar threw, what was it, 27 pass attempts? But Lamar generally throws fewer than 30 times. That's where they like to keep him is around 30 or fewer pass attempts. So, uh, you know, six or so targets is probably a fair projection for Bateman. My concern here is Bateman caught four of those targets for 29 yards. And so, you know, I don't know if his usage there was very like opponent specific, but they used him in very short areas of the field. And, you know, if he's going to be a short area receiver on this offense, at least for now, and maybe his role grows as a as the season goes on, um, as he becomes more comfortable in the NFL. But right now, like he's he's, he's a, he looks like a short area receiver, and that just means not a lot of ceiling, right? Unless he happens to just break one in a broken play, um, it's just like there's not a lot of ceiling there, and it's hard for me to want to play a 3,400 wide receiver who's going to be almost 20% owned uh, when he's averaging seven yards a catch. So I just want to mention that um, Brandon Cooks, I think, is play that I just play every week because he's like he's still not priced for the volume he's getting where, you know, he's still like he's gotten 57 targets on the season. He's that's nine and a half targets a game that he's averaging. You know, the, the Cardinals secondary is not great. So I think, you know, Cooks is a fantastic play um, just based on volume. 
what else have we talked about? I will always happily play Robert Woods at a two thousand dollar discount from Cooper Cup and and you know under less than half the ownership. I think that swings back and forth. Uh, we talked about Eagles, like so like Devonta Smith, Quez Watkins. I don't know that there's really anyone else. Terry McLaurin, I think you could put in the player pool if you're, you know, if you're not scared of the hamstring injury, which he's active, he's probably fine. Um, and he's, you know, he's one of those, he's a guy who has a 30 plus point ceiling and it looks like no one's going to play him this week. So, you know, play guys who have 30 plus point ceilings when no one's on them. Uh, and then it's the Titans pass game looks really underowned. Uh, AJ Brown's catching some ownership, but like Julio Jones, I think people are scared of his injury. Uh, he's projecting about 3% ownership. And I think Julio's ceiling is just about as high as AJ Brown's. Um, you know, it's scary to play Julio because it feels like he's always in and out of games, but you know, you've got to assume health when you play guys. And if he's if he's in, you gotta assume he's gonna play the game. I don't know. That's about it, I think. We already talked about the new the Giants guys. Yep. I will add Hunter Renfro. I think he is interesting. His splits over the last season and a half when um Derek Carr has at least three seconds of processing time. So there is not pressure generated on him. His target rate jumps all the way up to a 30% team target market share in that split, which is interesting against a Philly team who struggles to get to the quarterback. Um, I think he might be a little bit more than just a floor play and likely, um, I mean, Robbie Anderson isn't going to garner much ownership, but he's another play in that at, at the same price at 4.8 that I think is going to go overlooked this week. Uh, we talked about most of them. I think Amon Ross St. Brown might see um, some traction. I will not be going there. He is, he is more of the floor play that I think um, the field is really viewing uh, Hunter Renfro as, you know, seven, eight, eight targets over the last three weeks, uh, but extremely low upside role. Um, the last guy I want to bring up, and I think JM brought him up as well, is Russell Gage. Um, Russell B- Gage coming back from injury is going to be completely overlooked in what is now, you know, probably a top three or four expected game environment from an ownership perspective. Uh, but I don't think any of that ownership is going to go through Russell Gage. We expect him to come back to his standard slot role. We expect him to come back to his standard, you know, 85 plus percent snap rate. So he's going to be on the field a lot. He's going to be running a lot of routes and he's going to be completely forgotten here. Uh, those are the big ones. I do want to reiterate what you said about Rashad Bateman. I agree there. He played 65% of the offensive snaps last week. Um, and Basically, he and Devin DuVernay are being utilized in a low upside near the line of scrimmage role with Marquise Brown as kind of that only deep threat with Sam Watkins out. That is all I got on the wide receiver position. Let's jump real quick to tight end, talk about some defenses. We are going super long, but this is a super interesting slate, so I don't feel bad. Um, it's like OWS brand, right? JM started this. It's OWS yeah. brand, go long. <laughs> Oh, man. I think it's warranted. This slate is super interesting. Um, Tight end position, Travis Kelsey, uh, Darren Waller, Mark Andrews, kind of down the line until we get to Kyle Pitts, are all expected to garner ownership. Kyle Pitts is kind of this interesting case where I think people are still shying away. If attacking the Atlanta offense, I would be much more inclined to rock with Pitts as opposed to a highly owned Calvin Ridley in a low ADOC role. 
Um, further down, Mike Kosicki is expected to garner ownership. I do. I started the week like Mike Kosicki is my tight end play this week. I've gotten away from that after talking to Todd um, and thinking <coughs> through how I really want to attack that game. Uh, but he is viable. And then Dallas Goddard. And those are really the top five as far as expected ownership goes. We can expect Zach Ertz to garner ownership in his new team. Um, and we can expect Ricky Seals-Jones to garner ownership as really the lowest where people are going to feel comfortable with workload. Guys that are extremely interesting to me. One is Cole Komet. Mm-hmm. Down all the way at 3K against Tampa Bay. We talked about all the reasons to kind of overemphasize or how that pass game is likely to be overemphasized this week. Hayden Hurst is interesting from a I'm gonna vomit in my mouth perspective, but he's priced at only <laughs> 2.7. Um <laughs> he's uh likely to see five to seven maybe targets uh if things break exactly right. He's an interesting player to consider in game stacks that is likely to be not used. And then Anthony Ferkser, what pass game interest does flow through the Titans is likely to be focused on AJ Brown and Julio Jones. If Tennessee is really, really pushed towards the air, I like Anthony Ferkser to see an increase to his five targets, which is his season. That's what I got at tight end. What he got? Ferkser is zero point five percent projected ownership. Um, I kind of like that call actually, and and that just fits a theme that I think is worth always trying to embrace when you're building around uh, game environments. Is consider everyone in the game environment. The story JM loves to tell is when Cubs fan won the Millie Maker. He did it with a was a Texans Seahawks stack. But he didn't play. I think it was Doug Baldwin who was like the wide receiver one on the Seahawks. He played like a bunch of like Paul Richardson and I don't even remember who the other one was. Um, but like you know David Moore, whoever the hell the other like wide receiver three on the Seahawks was at the time. Um, and so you know you got to consider that like the game can hit, but touchdowns are incredibly high variance. And actually, Ferkser, there's some things pointing his way, which is that uh, Kansas City, despite their defensive struggles this year, has still been pretty decent at at, at at tapping down, uh, tamping down production to perimeter wide receivers. And so, you know, I think AJ Brown and Julio are still great plays, um, but we could possibly see, you know, to see scheme uh, more work to the middle of the field, um, trying to get away from the strength of the Kansas City defense. Um, I also, I will point out, I like uh, Tyler Higby and Robert Tonyan. And these are just plays where it's, these are some of the highest total uh, teams on the slate. Uh, in the Rams and the Packers. And these are the plays that no one else is going to use from those teams. And so those that's just kind of like their bet on touchdown variance plays where, you know, you bet that everyone's playing Daryl Henderson and Cooper Cup and Tyler Higby catches two touchdowns or everyone plays Aaron Jones and Devontae Adams and Robert Tonyan catches two touchdowns. And those are unlikely outcomes, right? Like there's nothing to point to that occurring. Um, but like when you when people are clumped on ownership, like let me back up. What happens in DFS is people look at high total games and then they say, aha, this team's going to score a lot of points. I should play players from that game and from that team. And then they say, who are the best, the best, the best, the best plays on that team? It's this guy, this guy, and maybe this other guy. And then they tend to have a high degree of confidence, essentially, that they can predict where the touchdowns are going to go. 
Um, so people play Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones, and no one plays Alan Zard and, Ra- and Randall Cobb and Robert Tonyan. And I'm not trying to tell you you should go load up on Randall Cobb this week, right? But I'm just saying that people overrate their ability to predict where the touchdowns go. And I'm generally not willing to embrace that variance at a position like wide receiver, which is a really valuable position on your roster. Um, like I'm not going to play Randall Cobb and hope that he catches two touchdowns. I think he did a couple weeks ago, um, but I'm not going to bet on that. If I were building game stacks of that game, I would include Randall Cobb in the player pool for my for that game, but I'm not going to stack that game. But where I will bet is the tight end position, because I'm happy to bet at the position that has the most volatility uh, that, you know, some random tight end on the highest, uh, you know, one of the highest total games of the week, that he's the one who gets the touchdowns. And so not only do does Tyler Higby score, you know, a good, put up a good score, Robert Tonyan put up a good score, but they also drag down all the other chalk plays in that game by doing so. And so, you know, those are those are the kind of plays that I like to make at tight end. So, like, I've got Tyler Higby, I've got Robert Tonyan. I kind of love the Anthony Ferkser call, and I, I I think I'll probably add him to my player pool. Uh, I think uh, I've got OJ Howard and or Cam Brait. Um, similarly, like one of the one of the things I do when I build when I'm uh, starting my research for the week is, like I said, I go th- I have a running back checklist. I also have a tight end checklist, and I just go look at. Uh, what are the highest total teams on the week? Do those teams use a tight end in the pass game at all? If so, that tight end goes on the list. Um, and then I look for like where they're, where they're coming in really low owned and say, okay, I'll, I'll happily play some of that. Like I'll happily play some of those tight ends and just hope I hope I land on the right side of touchdown variance. Absolutely dig it. I got nothing to add at tight end. We'll jump over to defense. Um, 35% of the field is expected to play the Cardinals defense at 3.1. That is absolutely absurd. I don't think I've seen that since the new England, like six weeks from last season where they just completely like scored a defensive touchdown every week. Uh, but that is absurd. Um, I was heavy. I had heavy interest on the Cardinals until seeing that I am much more likely now after having seen that to pivot to the Ravens at 2.9. We talked about that earlier to pivot to the Patriots at just $300 more against my boo Tang (laughs) on the Jets. Um, And that is kind of what I'm thinking and what I'm seeing from the defenses Rams. I'm not going there. They're priced at 5k. That's absurd. The Buccaneers even at 4k is somewhat absurd to me with the defensive injuries that they have. So that is kind of where my interest is lying with the Patriots and the Ravens. Over to you. Yeah, so my defensive player pool is always going to be bigger um, because I, if I'm if I'm doing MME, um, and I have the same thoughts basically. Like the the Cardinals are the best defense on the slate, right? Like David Mills is not ready to be an NFL quarterback. Clearly, um, the Cardinals have the highest raw points projection of any defense on the slate. And frankly, they're just mispriced, right? Like they should be 4k this week at least. And they're 3,100. So like something went wrong with the DraftKings pricing algorithm and they, the best defense on the slate is priced like a mid tier defense. Um, and so like, they're clearly the best defense, but we also know that we suck at projecting defensive scoring because, you know, we can look at pressure rates. We can look at like how bad the opposing quarterback is. Uh, we can look at like adjusted sack rate, but it's still the highest variance position and it's not even close. Um, and so like the only thing 
that says don't play the Cardinals is ownership. But that's a pretty weighty argument when they're this owned. Like 30% is nuts for a defense. I it's hard for me to remember when I've seen a defense be 30% owned in tournaments. Like usually fit usually between 15 to 20 is about the highest you see. And so it's like, God, they're the best, they're clearly the best defense, but like that ownership is is just bonkers. So I will say, uh, I will have some Cardinals defense. I will be underweight the field. Um when I play the Cardinals defense, it will be with a couple of very specific circumstances. One is when my core game stack is uh, is is one that the field's not going to be on. So, like, I would play Arizona defense in my, like, Joe Burrow game stacks or my Justin Fields game stacks or my uh, Eagles Raiders game stacks. Like, I'm OK because I'm already getting so far away from the field um, in those in those core stacks that I don't have to worry as much about the the significant ownership I'm taking on at defense. Um, I would also consider, and I don't know if I'm going to do this because it feels like this play always sounds cute and never actually works, um, but I might try playing a little bit of cards defense with Rondale Moore um, because Rondale Moore is the kick returner. And uh, if he, you know, you get the, you get that whole double dip thing if they return for a touchdown, which like never actually pans out in history. Um, I don't know. Maybe it does. But like, <clears throat> I don't love the cards because they spread the ball around so much that I can't predict where it's going. And we've noted, and I wrote in the or I wrote this out in the Oracle that there have only been two 25 plus point skill position scores by the Cardinals uh, this entire season, despite the Cardinals being fourth in the NFL in points. Um, one of the scores is DeAndre Hopkins, and that wasn't a good, that wasn't actually a great score for him at his salary. And the other score is Rondale Moore. And so what we do know about Rondale Moore is they want to scheme him work. He has a lot of upside with the ball in his hands. He's an explosive player. He's got a great matchup. Um, there's nothing to say that like he's going to stand out this week, that he's going to be the one getting the volume. But I still kind of like him anyway. I don't know. Maybe I'm a sucker for chasing this narrative of like the the double dip touchdown. Um, but you could envision a scenario where like if he does get a defensive touchdown um, and then gets like four catches for 50 yards with another touchdown, then he's over 20 points and the Cardinals defense is smashing and having him on your roster at very low ownership offsets the ownership of the Cardinals D. Honestly, that's probably stupid if I'm being totally honest and candid. So don't listen to me on this. That's a terrible play, but I might play some anyway. Um, I'm also just always interested in defenses that are going to go up against uh, a team that projects for a lot of passing attempts because passing attempts lead to you know, dropbacks, lead to sacks, lead to turnovers. Uh, and so the other defenses I have in my pool are the Packers against uh, Washington and Taylor Heineke uh, and the Panthers against our friend Daniel Jones, who I'm also interested in playing. Um, I like Daniel Jones. I'll play Daniel Jones, but I'll also play some Carolina defense. Uh, we talked about how they sort of overachieved to start the season and then underachieved a little bit, but they're still a middling defense going against a um, a quarterback who is aggressive and has upside, but also is mistake prone and has like no one to throw the ball to. So. So yeah, my defensive pool is like a little bit of Arizona, Patriots, Ravens, um, Packers, and Panthers. I love it. Uh, hopefully everyone can still hear me. I had to transfer. A- yeah. Up yeah, we, we still got you. You're, you're in a bit of a wind tunnel right now, but we got you. Okay, I'm actually in my car now. So, uh, hopefully that sounds okay. Uh, yeah, I have nothing to add at defense. Um, pretty much destroyed this slate. Oh, I think we should bring Aaron in for some questions. Oh, probably. Yeah. 
All right, gentlemen, we got um, a couple questions. I'll keep it on the topic of the Arizona Cardinals. It just came in from A.M. Jones. He wants to know about going the other direction with Arizona and going 100 percent with them in his uh, builds, saying, I never do that. But tossing around the idea of locking and just trying to get eight spots right for this one week. That is, uh, I feel more in the line of a single entry and three max thinking. I'm definitely okay doing that. That's on a standard week. And typically I'm okay doing that on defenses that are projected for 8 to 15% ownership. Just because there are so many variant acts when you think about defensive scoring, I'm much more likely to want to fade completely as opposed to go all in when you talk about a defense that has 30 to 35% expected ownership. And the reason for that is if you go hundred percent and Arizona smashes and you know, they're clear in a way. And I mean, like they are seven, 10 points higher scoring than any other defense. Now they are had to have a piece, but you're still competing against 30% or 35% of the field that also had that defense it's much more likely to be profitable over time to play to the variance in the other direction in that betting on the Cardinals, not outscoring every other defense by like seven to 10 points. Um, so that's why I look for the pivots at when I see ownership like that on a defense. Yeah, I agree. And I've never locked a defense, uh, whether in three, well, I, 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 actually, I guess I have in like three max, um, but I've never locked a defense in, in, in MME play. Um, you can, I mean, like, look, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you that Arizona, like Arizona is the best defense in the slate uh, by, by raw projection. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong to do it. If they hit for 20 points and no other defense passes 10 points, then the, despite the ownership, they are going to be a, a pretty necessary piece of winning tournaments this week. Um, to Hilo's point, what we talk, you know, the strategy of how to approach defense and highly owned defenses is not about can we predict what's going to happen this week, but is about what's going to make the most money. What's, what, what will make us the most money over time, right? Like what will make us the most money if we played this slate out a hundred times? And I think in that case, it's pretty clear that it would be to be underweight or not play the Arizona defense. Um, I think that's you know we have we have years of data on highly owned defenses that makes that a pretty inarguable position. Um, now, whether or not that happens this week, I can't tell you. I can't predict outcomes, right? I can't tell you if Arizona is going to smash or not. What I can tell you is if every time there is a you know 20% plus owned defense, you say, great, I'm checking them off my list and not playing them, that will be a profitable decision for you over time. All right. This one's from Pruitt DJ. Uh, looking for thoughts on using a cheap QB stack from one of the big underdogs and then stacking one of the other big favorites with it. So specifically, I wanted your thoughts on using a Heineke stack with no Green Bay or a field stack with no Tampa. Thought being that price considered, Heineke and Fields do not necessarily need Green Bay and Tampa to generate had-to-have-it scores at their prices in order to get uh, there themselves. So looking at using Rams or Chief stacks opposite these rather than trying to use the Lions or the Texans, which feel thinner to me. Just wondered what your thoughts on this approach would be. To answer that, I think we need to 
take a look at something that JM has said season where we as a community tend to overweight the viability of point per dollar scores. When we're talking about GPP play, you, I guess I should say point per dollar is far less important than raw point output because, you know, going back to last season where JM said this a lot, once the first kickoff happens or once the kickoff in a prospective game happens, salary doesn't matter because you are competing to outperform the rest of the field. And when that is the case, like these lower probability chance, and particularly for Taylor Heineke, where the the game environment doesn't lend itself to increased volume for either quarterback, a little bit less so for, um, I forgot what the other example was given. Uh, oh, fields. Uh, fields. Yeah, so fields success directly correlates, it, it doesn't directly correlate to the opposing quarterback success. So it doesn't directly, um, if field succeeds or if Fields does not succeed, is almost immaterial for the opposing quarterback. That said, it is directly correlated to obviously the game environment as a whole, but that is primarily limited to the offensive expectation for Chicago. Like it, it almost doesn't have an impact for Tom Brady and the Bucks because we know that the Bucks are going to remain aggressive. We know that Tom Brady is likely to surpass 40 pass attempts, and we know that their target distribution is condensed. So I think the, I would, I guess to sum it up, I would get away from thinking about underdogs in a way that their production is influenced by a large home favorite. And I would look more towards raw points point totals, particularly for GPP. Uh, I just want to add, it kind of depends on who you play with Heineke, I think. So like, because you have to, you do have to think, you know, you need, to, you need raw point totals, um, but you need more raw points from more players. And so like, if you have fields and one of his receivers, they cost about 10K. And so if you get 50 points from the two, from that pairing, you're pretty ecstatic. And so what does it take to get 50 points from those two uh, and figure out, you know, like what, what kind of stat line for each of them gets that combo to 50 points. And in fields, this case uh, it's a, it's a somewhat modest one. It's a realistic one that does not, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be predicated on the bears winning the game or the game turning into a massive shootout. And we also know the bucks are going to pretty, pretty much stay aggressive, almost no matter what their opponent does. Um, with the Packers, I think the situation is a little bit different because one, if you're stacking Heineke with McLaurin, McLaurin is you know seven K, and so for McLaurin, for you to feel really good about McLaurin, you need like thirty points, and so that's a line of something like you know ten catches for hundred and twenty yards and a touchdown, and you know if that's the entirety of the football team's scoring, if they only score one touchdown and and this of just McLaurin's gets ton of yards and catches. Um, that doesn't necessarily result in pushing the Packers towards a more aggressive stance. Um, but that also doesn't get you enough out of Heineke, right? So in order for Heineke and McLaurin to work together, you probably need Heineke to throw for at least two touchdowns and run one in or throw for three touchdowns. And so in that case, like 
we the Packers are a more game script sensitive team than the Bucks, right? We know the Bucks are going to do their thing. We know the Rams are going to do their thing. The Packers will happily take a quiet win um, and not really exert themselves in the second half if the other team isn't pushing them. And so with a Heineke McLaurin stack, based on where their prices are, it's not impossible for that to hit without resulting in enough scoring in the game to really push the Packers towards more aggression. But it's not likely. The likeliest path for a Heineke McLaurin stack to hit results in enough fantasy points, um, enough real points that that pushes the Packers to to stay to stay aggressive as well. And so, again, that doesn't mean you have to play a Packer. Um, it just means that that increases the likelihood of Devontae Adams or Aaron Jones or someone on the Packers having a bigger game. Um, so that's kind of how I'd view that as you have to think about like the game environment, you think about the team they're playing and that team's tendencies. Um, again, like the Packers, you know, the Bucks are going to do, do their thing. You know, they've scored, they scored three passing touchdowns for absolutely no reason against the Dolphins just to give them a giant middle finger. Whereas the Packers are going to like take it easy in the fourth quarter if they're up by two or three scores. Um, so that's kind of how I would think it through. Um, I do think it's viable to play. Uh, without bringbacks is a general rule. Like we know that bringbacks are positively correlated, but you don't have to do everything in a positively correlated way in DFS, right? Like in some ways, positive correlation also comes with uh, ownership, right? Because that's how most of the field builds because that's the that's the way that's correct the majority of the time. Um, and so it's reasonable to say, I'm going to do something that's not positively correlated because even though I, I lose some of the correlation benefit, I can get some ownership benefit as well. Awesome. X, I still see you trying to talk on your screen. Are you, are you done? I pro I promise I'm not. <laughs> All right. Um, Oh, help me, Did you want to have a question? I know I saw your hand up here. Okay, we have one from the audience, and then uh, this will be the last question for the night because I know we're pretty far past uh, our time limit here. So, uh, help me, You can accept it and come on up here. Time limit, time limit. <laughs> hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. Hey, I got a quick question because I was listening to you guys earlier talk about building ugly lineups, right? Like embracing this ugly thing. And so I'm playing in this early only. It's like 50 bucks, 586 contestants. And this lineup I was building while I was on the phone with you guys started with like Lamar Jackson, Derek Henry, and Travis Kelsey. Like in a contest that small, am I, should I, I guess, am I leaving myself too thin? by starting with a lineup like that? I'm going into DraftKings now and sort of poking around at what it looks like if you start with that and so seeing how much like because flexibility I, you still have. Because I had like Mike Davis and the uh, Falcons defense. <clears throat> Jamar Chase as a bring back for Lamar Jackson. But I did end up with like two tight ends. They were Seals Jones and Kelsey though. Yeah, I, so I will say, much like last week, um, I think that Ricky Seals-Jones, they've not been aggressive enough in his price, and I think that he's hes likely to see as much volume as any wide receiver um, priced at his level or more. 
um, with the possible exception of uh, Pettis, if uh, if if Sterling Shepard misses. So I actually think it's and and then to Kelsey, like similarly, like we talked about this last week, where Kelsey has uh, a ceiling that is as high as any wide receiver he's priced around. Um, so. I actually think that 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 particular double tight end pairing is not unreasonable. Um, I'm trying to think of how to answer this sort of from a strategy way, as opposed to just picking up like like talking about players, because I don't think that's as useful. Like I do, I think at a high level, what you're doing is you're doing what Hilo talked about earlier, which is you're you're recognizing the field is not likely to pair multiple of the really premium plays um being like henry adams hill kelsey cup right the five most expensive skill position players in the slate the five highest projected skill position players in the slate right most of the field is not going to pair two of those guys because it's hard and it makes some ugly looking rosters when you do it right um I, i personally think in a 500 person tournament uh, that strategy, what you, what you're talking about, is entirely viable because in a 500 person tournament, like that's still pretty big. You know, if a if a player yeah. is three percent owned, that still means there's 15 rosters out there with that guy. So like, you can't be like, well, I hit on the one three percent owned guy, and so I win. You know, like there's still a bunch of other rosters you're competing with. So yeah. I think I think that strategy is viable. Um, you know, I think that you can build that roster in a few different ways, thinking about like the individual players you choose. Um, I personally would hesitate to put Chase on that roster just because I feel like you're already investing so much of your salary in two studs and trying to get a third stud leaves you fairly thin in other spots. Um, but, but in a vacuum, I love Jamar Chase and think he's an awesome play. So like, I wouldn't, you know, I think I'd probably personally go for like Higgins or Boyd as the Bengals play, which leaves you some more salary flexibility. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's just like that's that's my personal preference, right? I don't think that's yeah. that's that's a like this is the right way to play it, and Chase is the wrong way to play it. Chase is absolutely not the wrong way to play it by any means. So I don't know that's yeah. those are my thoughts. I think it's I think the strategy is entirely viable. I think the strategy is appropriate for the field size. Okay, thank you. That's all no, I had. Hila, do you want to add? Yeah, I've got really nothing to add. I think you covered everything. There you go. Aaron, do we do we have anything else? No, um, I guess yeah. Let me get one more question in here because I know uh, this was a question that got a couple likes on the chat here. Um, you guys talked about Bateman. Um, someone wanted to know about a pivot to Marquise Brown. Just any thoughts on him being some good leverage this week? I actually wrote up Marquise Brown in the Oracle. Um, because I think he is going to go hard. So first off, he's not really a pivot, right? Because he's way in a completely different uh, salary uh, salary point. Um, but he is, I think, a mid-priced wide receiver that is going to not attract a lot of ownership. The matchup isn't awesome for him, um, but he's got... I, I don't remember the stat exactly, but it's like if you go back to like including last season, he has like, you know, at least 70 yards and or a touchdown and something like... You know, I don't remember. It's like 70% of the games or something like that. So like clearly, uh, except whenever I play him, he drops everything he's thrown. So like, I don't know. Um, so maybe I, maybe if I don't play him, that's a good sign for you. And then he'll catch things. But um, I, but I, think, he's, I think he's a great tournament play. Let me go look at his ownership. Where is it? Uh, Marquise Brown, where are you? 4.7% ownership. 
I mean, we talked about this with some guys like uh, who's the guy I was talking about before, um, Terry McLaurin, where when you can get receivers who have uh, slight breaking ceilings um, at, you know, sub 5% ownership, that's probably a good tournament play is a good rule of thumb to have. I think it's whether or not Marquise Brown has slate breaking ceiling is probably somewhat up for debate because you know he has one game this year of 36.5 DraftKings points. So that was an overtime game. So in regulation, he tends to cap out around 25. Like you probably need the Bengals to be competitive in order for him to really hit his ceiling. So I like him. I, I want to play some of him. Um, I want to have a Bengal in lineups where I play him. Hilo's car mic is uh, challenging. Yeah, we couldn't quite catch that. X, uh, why don't you go ahead and take us out? Because I don't know if we have the mic on Hilo, <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll let everybody get to uh, some roster construction tonight. Yeah, I guess we went way over on the time, so we don't get to do that Battle Royale draft. Alas, we'll have to do that another time. Um, yeah, thank you all for listening. Uh, I think it's a a super interesting slate uh, with the way it's shaking out uh, for everything we talked about where you've got this one game that's the best game coming in lower owned than it should. You've got a bunch of these onslaught teams that are just like massive favorites. So it's a really interesting slate to me. Um, hopefully this helped you kind of piece together how you're going to decide how to attack the slate. Uh, I'm going to go back to tilting Bam at a bio absolutely getting all the usage in this heat game and smashing and Jimmy Butler doing nothing. Uh, And I will see you in Discord and at the top of the leaderboards. Later, everyone.